If you'd open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 42, please. Isaiah chapter 42. We saw in chapter 41 last week, and we finished chapter 41 on Wednesday night during prayer meeting, um, uh, talking further about the idolatry that God was addressing. Uh, we have seen that God has had called in chapter 41 the coastlands into his courtroom to talk with him. The coastlands were those nations along the norder, northern border of uh, the Mediterranean Sea. And uh, God uh, asked this question in his courtroom, who is the sovereign of the universe? And God then established himself as sovereign and idols as worthless. Of course, last week we spent some time marveling at how the Bible really kind of gets to the, to, the, to the real weakness in our idolatry, both ancient as well as modern. The ancient idols always had this one little troubling trait that they needed. They needed someone to prop them up so they wouldn't fall over. They needed someone to mount them with nails so they wouldn't fall over. Which is telling you that if your idol cannot even take care of itself, it can't take care of you either. And our modern idols are no different. If we worship our bodies, if we worship money, uh, if, if, if we uh, worship our beauty or material goods or our properties... Um, God made all of those. God is sovereign over all of those things. They cannot deliver you. They exist in Him. They exist because of Him. They are not your God. In other words, they are not your source of purpose. They are not your source of identity. They are not your source of meaning. You will leave all of that behind. And, and, and so that, that's modern idolatry. God also appoints devastation as well as blessing. He prophesies about it beforehand and then brings it to pass. This is what he's been doing in Isaiah. Uh, he is having Isaiah speaking of events that would be uh, almost a century into the future, over a century into the future, five centuries into the future, and yet future to us at the end times. Uh, God is demonstrating by telling us what will happen in the future and then bringing it to pass that he is sovereign. You can read from the... Uh, prophecies uh, of this book written well before Christ came. And you can see that all of these prophecies are fulfilled in Christ. You can choose to believe and follow our Lord or you can chafe against him. For now, God is patient. And that's what today's text is going to be a little bit about is the patience of God, allowing you time to repent, allowing you time to come to him. And God also introduces us to his be a beloved servant. Now, as we look at this servant, the servant is a little bit confusing. Is it Israel or is it the Messiah? Is it Jesus? And uh, you might find that it's both. But uh, let's look at chapter 42 together. I'm going to read the whole chapter. Before I do, I want you to see the high points. Verse 1, behold my servant. Look at verse 5. Thus says the Lord. And then verse 6, I am the Lord. Verse 8, I am the Lord. God is going to establish himself as creator and he's going to make two assertions based on the fact that I am the Lord. Uh, look at verse number 10. Sing to the Lord a new song, his praise from the end of the earth. God's going to invite uh, his people to sing a new song. Verse 14. For a long time I held my peace. God is going to talk about how he has been very patient with mankind. He has held his peace. He has not come in judgment. That is going to change in verse number 14. And the description of how it changes is rather startling. Verse 18. Hear you deaf, look you blind. This is an opportunity for us who are blind, us who are deaf, to have spiritual insight and to believe on the Messiah, 
the Lord Jesus Christ. This is an ongoing discussion that will continue in chapter 43. In fact, these Messiah uh, passages are going to go all the way through Isaiah 55. And, uh, and so we have a lot of beautiful studies about our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. This would look like Christian propaganda if you published it in Jerusalem today, except it is Jewish text through and through, written centuries before Jesus came. Um, so let's read chapter 42, if we could, please. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring justice, forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prisons, who, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Sing to the Lord a new song, His praise from the end of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that fills it, the coastlands and their inhabitants, let the desert and its cities lift up their voice, the villages that Kedar inhibits. Let the inhabitants of Selah sing for joy. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare His praise in the coastlands. The Lord goes out like a mighty man, like a man of war. He stirs up his zeal. He cries out. He shouts out. He shows himself mighty against his foes. For a long time I have held my peace. I have kept still and restrained myself. Now I will cry out like a woman in labor. I will gasp and pant. I will lay waste mountains and hills and dry up all their vegetation. I will turn the rivers into islands and dry up the pools. And I will lead the blind in a way they do not know, in paths they have not known. I will guide them. I will turn the darkness before them into light, the rough places into level ground. These are the things I do, and I do not forsake them. They are turned back and utterly put to shame who trust in carved idols, who say to metal images, you are our gods. Hear, you deaf, and look, you blind, that you may see. Who is blind but my servant, or deaf as my messenger whom I send? Who is blind as my dedicated one, or blind as the servant of the Lord? He sees many things, but he does not observe them. His ears are open, but he does not hear. The Lord was pleased for his righteousness sake to magnify his law and make it glorious. But this is a people plundered and looted. They are all of them trapped in holes and hidden in prisons. They have become plunder with none to rescue, spoil with no one to say, restore. Who among you will give ear to this, will attend and listen for the time to come? 
Who gave up Jacob to the looter and Israel to the plunderers? Was it not the Lord against whom we have sinned, in whose ways they should not walk, and whose law they would not obey? So he poured on him the heat of his anger and the might of battle. It set him on fire all around, but he did not understand. It burned him up, but he did not take it to heart. And just reading one more verse, but now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. Let's pray. God, as we look at your word today, we pray for your Holy Spirit to give us illumination, insight, understanding to your word. Father, we pray that your spirit would expose to us our own idolatry, our own rejection of you. Perhaps, Father, there are even some in this room who hate you, hate the idea of a God who's going to judge them. I pray that you would soften our hearts and cause us to be repentant. Help us, God, to put on righteousness. Above all, help us to trust your, your Messiah, Jesus Christ. Lord, teach us today, we ask in Jesus' name. Change us in Jesus' name. Amen. As we begin our study, you have an outline to follow along. God presents his servant who will not break a bruised reed, yet he establishes justice in all the earth. So he's very gentle, and yet this Messiah will establish justice. Look at verse number one. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Now, who is this Messiah? Who is this servant? Uh, if, if you're Christians, your, your default expectation is this is Jesus. This is the Messiah. If you're Jewish, your default interpretation is probably this is Israel, that this is the nation of Israel, being referred to in the singular. And, 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 that, and, and so that, asks us, that causes us to ask, which is it? Is it Israel or is it Jesus? And I wonder if it is not both. That um, Let me explain to you, for instance. Um, if you look at verse number uh, 6, verse number 6, I am the Lord, I have called you. That's a singular pronoun in righteousness. I will take you, singular, by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. That sounds like the Messiah to me. But you know, that also sounds like Israel. And the Messiah is a subset of Israel. Uh, on, it's, uh, on, on September 6th, Cornerstone Baptist Church is going to be feeding the firemen. That's a true statement. But in reality, probably three of you are going to be down there feeding the firemen. A subset is spoken of as Cornerstone Baptist Church. That this Messiah is also the nation of Israel. To put it another way, there are times at which you're saying, this has to include the nation of Israel, this singular servant. And there are other times where Isaiah amps up and antes up what he is saying so much that you're like, no, no, that's deity, Messiah. Uh, let me show you one more time. Look at verse number 18. Um, Hear you deaf and look you blind that you may see. Who is blind but my servant? God is calling his servant blind. Or deaf as my messenger whom I send. Who is blind as my dedicated one? Or blind as the servant of the Lord? He sees many things but does not observe them. See, I don't think that's talking about Jesus. I think that's talking about the nation of Israel. And yet as we get through chapter 55, there is no way that mere humanity can accomplish what this servant accomplishes. So when we see servant, behold my servant, for now I'm seeing this as the servant is both Israel and the subset of Israel, her Messiah. 
And, uh, and as we continue studying, we'll see how that works for us. Now, let's look at verse number two. And here's where I just think this is messianic. This is Jesus. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. And a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. And the coastlands, that would be the Gentile idolaters we read about last week along the northern part of the Mediterranean, and the coastlands wait for his law. So this speaks of a, of a Messiah. I understand it. it's going to come in total gentleness. He's not going to break a bruised reed. Now, reeds, as I understand it, they grow along the sides of water. Children could demolish reeds. They can knock them over. They're weak. Okay, so if you have a reed that's already weak and it's bruised, you have something that's useless twice over, right? I mean, it, it's, it's weak to begin with. Now it's bruised. It's useless. It's weak. If you have a lamp, and you have to, you have to see those little, uh, you know, those little Israeli lamps, you know, with the olive oil in a, in a, in a little uh, a container with a wick sticking out the end. When you have a wick that is smoldering, when it's, when it's just, when it's, uh, what is the word here? Uh, a faintly burning wick. Why does the wick start to burn faintly? Well, one reason it could not be trimmed, you don't have enough wick pushed out, but the other is very likely that it's about spent, that this wick is just about through, it's a tosser. It's like, it's time to just flick it away and get a new wick. Uh, This Messiah is going to be gentle toward the weak, gentle toward the spent, Uh, those that that have have very little left to them, the, the tossers, if you will. This world is a cold and unforgiving place. It's vengeful. If you confess the things you've done in the world, you will be put out. Your brokenness will be played upon to crush you entirely. The world is not kind. The world is not kind to those who are weak or those who are spent. But our Savior, when you repent of your sin, and might I say a healthy local church, when you confess your sins, it's a whole different gentleness that we have here. Listen to chapter 40, verse 11. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently. The servant of God that we read about in verses 1 through 4 is gentle toward the weak. By the way, if you look at verse number uh, 4, where there's a couple of negative verbs, he will not grow faint. That word faint is dim. What does a smoldering wick do? It grows dim. He will not grow dim. Or be discouraged. He will not be discouraged. And that word there is bruised, just like the reed that was bruised. So he will not grow dim. He will not be bruised. Uh, Yet the fact that that is mentioned, it, it seems like he is going to live Existence where he will be tempted, where he will be tried, where he will be tested, and he will prevail in a way that we have not. And yet, being one that has prevailed in our midst, being one that was tempted in every manner like we are, and having succeeded in living perfect righteousness, he is kind. He is careful in, in, in working with you, in handling you. Finally, note the scope of his ministry in verse number four. It's not just Israel, it's the coastlands, it's the Gentiles who are going to be waiting for his law. He ministers to all the nations. Let's continue here in point number two. God makes two announcements to his servant based on his lordship. One is that you are to be a light to liberate them, the nations, to liberate them. 
And number two is that God will be glorified through the fulfillment of these prophecies in a way no idol can. Uh, Look at verse number five. Thus says the Lord, thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. Now just stop and understand that in a world where there's multiple gods in people's mind, God says, no, no, no. I need to introduce you to who I am. I am the God who gives you that next breath. Let's just all take that next breath, right? That came from God. He said, I just want you to understand, I am your creator God. I am not a useless idol. I am your creator God, and I am about to make some things. So in verse 6, he begins with, I am the Lord. Verse 8, he begins with, I am the Lord. Now, based on the fact that I am the Lord, God says this. I am the Lord, verse 6. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. Now, that is certainly talking about the Messiah and what he does. The you is singular there, but it is also, I believe, talking about Israel, what the people of God do. That God is taking them by the hand. God is keeping them by the hand. And God is giving them to a covenant for the people, for the nations, to give liberty to those who are prisoners who are in their own dungeon of sin. That is part of our mission. I am the Lord. I have called you Messiah. Um, And now to the people of God, to Israel, I am the Lord. I have called you. I believe that this is an area where we cannot draw the lines between Messiah and the people of God. Verse number eight. I am the Lord. That's my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. What defines your life? In antiquities, you were a worshiper of Baal or a worshiper of God. Uh, what defines your life? When people think of you, what do they think of? God will not give his praise to carved idols. Verse 9, behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell them to you. So God is telling us, here is something that idols don't do. Idols don't tell you the future and then bring it to pass. We are studying, if you have any doubts that this prophecy was written before the time of Jesus Christ, you can go to Jerusalem today. You can talk to atheists who the Isaiah scroll to be well before the birth of Christ. And you can see that these things were written about Jesus Christ centuries before he was born. God prophesied these things, then he brought them to pass. Idols don't do that. Prophecy is a very important topic in this area, and in this, in this passage, and in the next 14 chapters that we're going to be going through. We want to pay very close attention to it. I tell you these things before they spring forth, God says. Verses 10 through 13 are a hymn of praise to God for his salvation. Do you see that in verse 13? I sing to the Lord a new song, his praise from the ends of the earth. What we should not be looking for here is new content. The newness of this song comes from the newness of the heart. Uh, Forty-five years after trusting Jesus Christ, there is still newness to your life. There is newness to your praise. Uh, Though you have sinned, you are forgiven. Uh, There is a freedom, there is a freshness, there is a future, there is a newness in Jesus Christ. Sing to the Lord a new song, verse 10. His praise from the end of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that fills it, the coastlands and their inhabitants. As he talks about you who go down to the sea, I wonder if he's not talking about some of the the people who are 
in the lowest stages of life. They're, they're the people who are going out on sea and, 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 and dealing with merchandise and sailing and, and, and just deckhands, so to say. But the coastlands, that's certainly Gentile idolaters from last week's text. Gentile idolaters. And, and he's calling them all to enter into this new song of praise for God and their relationship in Him. Look at verse 11. Let the deserts and its cities lift up their voice. And here's a couple of cities named by name. The villages that Kedar inhabits. Let the inhabitants of Selah sing for joy. A couple of maps. Um, let me, I've got them in reverse. Uh, Kedar. These are the people of Ishmael. And the people of Ishmael were, um, if you remember, Abraham had two sons, Isaac and Ishmael. These are the people of Ishmael that God wants to bless. Um, uh, in the uh, previous one, Selah, uh, this would be Canaanites. So this would be a of the Canaanites that, that, that uh, God had devoted to destruction. And, and so God is reaching out to all the nations, up on the coastlands, down in the desert, everywhere. Uh, let, the, uh, let them shout for the, from the top of the mountains. Verse 12, let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coastlands. The Lord goes out like a mighty man, like a man of war. He stirs up his zeal. He cries out. He shouts aloud and shows himself mighty against his foes. Now, we began uh, talking about we began talking about how God is sending His servant who is gentle, but in verse number thirteen, God has signaled something. Uh, verse thirteen is a good point number three, four says that our God will cry out in an attack against the wicked. He's patient now. He's patient now. You don't hear from him, but he will cry out in an attack against the wicked. And look at the ferocity of his cry as God goes on the attack in verses 14 through 17. So verse 13 foreshadows, the Lord goes out like a mighty man. After all this talk about gentleness, that's for today. That's for today. Not breaking a bruised reed. God is gentle today. It's not always going to be that way. The Lord goes out like a mighty man, like a man of war. He stirs up his zeal. He cries out. He shouts out. He shows himself mighty. That means strong against his foes. Verse 14 recognizes what we have today. For a long time I have held my peace. I have kept still and restrained myself. Now get this. Now I will cry out like a woman in labor. I will gasp and pant. I will lay waste mountains and hills. If you think about I, I, the, the picture of a woman in labor, it seems odd for a, uh, a masculine deity like God the Father to be talking about being a woman in labor. But understand that after nine months of anticipation, of hope, of fear, uh, of everything that has come to this point, that, that a woman in labor is entirely focused body and soul on one thing. One thing, and that is getting this child delivered. Uh, you know, if, if her checkbook didn't balance last week, I doubt she's thinking about that. If there's some appointment that she uh, might have, um, she's unclear about next week, I doubt she's thinking about that. She is focused. And that is our God. He, he said, I am going to be focused. Like a woman in labor, I will gasp and pant and lay waste the mountains and hills. Now, two things. Number one, to be destroyed by an omnipotent God would be a fearful thing. And omnipotent means all-powerful God. To be on his list and to have him coming after you would be a bad thing. Even if he is totally distracted and, oh yeah, Tim, you know, and just flicks me away. You know, uh, when an omnipotent God does so much as that, it, that would be a fearful thing. It would utterly undo a finite creature. 
But this isn't God just as a, oh yeah, somewhat distracted. This is God focused body and soul. Crying, screaming, gasping, panting, focused on your destruction as a sinner laying the mountains to waste, drying up the rivers. God is warning that there's going to come a time, though this is a time of patience. We have time to repent. We have time to trust His Savior, Jesus Christ. If you are too proud, if you hate God so much that you're calculating, well, how bad could hell be with billions of people there anyway? If you hate God so much that you would make that calculation, beware, the day is coming where He is going to be entirely focused on destruction. Verse 15, I will lay waste mountains and hills and dry up their vegetation. I will turn rivers into islands and dry up the pools. I will lead the... Oh, look at this. Verse 16 changes all of a sudden. And I will lead the blind in a way they do not know. In paths they have not known, I will guide them. I will turn the darkness before them into light, the rough places into level ground. These are the things that I do, and I do not forsake them. But then we go back in verse 17 to the idolater. They are turned back and utterly put to shame who trust in carved idols, who say to metal images, you are our gods. It's amazing. God shows both sides here. Even as he talks about his future judgment, he reminds you that he will take the blind and give them sight. He wants to do that. Men reject the truth of God for all kinds of reasons. One is pride. Uh, you, know, you do not want to admit that you're a sinner who cannot undo your wrong. Whatever you get, you want to deserve it. You want to have earned it. You want to, have, you want to be in heaven based on your own status. The Bible says that does not work. All have sinned and fall short. Fall short of the glory of God. The standard is the glory of God. We have all fallen short. And the wages of sin is death. The Bible is clear in that teaching. But pride, pride will prevent some from saying, I am a sinner. I can't undo my sin. I need a Savior. And you need to trust Jesus. Pride will prevent many from doing that. Other people, it's hate. The idea that there's a God who's going to judge you. Uh, you don't even have to meet this God. You just hate the idea. Uh, 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 a sovereign? who owns everything and controls everything, he is righteous and holy, but he demands of me that I be righteous and holy, and his word, intends, his word informs me I have not been righteous and holy. And it informs me he's going to judge me over it. Uh, you know, there are people who just hate judgmentalism, even from a sovereign God. But he is sovereign, and he tells us he will judge. And you know, there are people who are calculating, you know... I have good resilience. I have, I have a good tolerance of pain. How bad could it be? There's going to be billions of people in hell with me. I'll get through it, I suppose. They're actually calculating, can they survive hell for all of eternity in a way that's somehow defined as bearable? Why would you make that kind of a calculation? Because you hate God. You hate the idea of God. Another reason might be pride of reputation. You worry about what family members will think if you come out for Jesus. Or what the intelligentsia at work or at the university might think. Or what friends might think. So just be clear on this. You are rejecting God, if that is you. Out of pride, out of hatred, whatever that might be, you are rejecting God. He's passive now. 
But when he comes crying like a woman in labor with battle cries, leveling mountains, it will be too late. I'll leave you with Romans chapter 2, verses 4 and 5 on this topic. Romans 2, verse 4 says, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? That's where we're at today. God is forbearing sin. He's patient. Not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. This is your time to repent. This is your time to turn from sin and turn towards Jesus. But, verse 5 continues, Romans 2, 5, because of your hard and impenitent heart, in other words, you're not going to repent, you're not sorry, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And that's what we're getting a glimpse of in Isaiah today. By the way, can we just have a quick lesson in Bible prophecy? If, if, you're, not, if you're not a big-time Bible student, this is your chance to go to sleep, get a quick nap, okay? Okay, but, um, so Andy, you can just zone out, all right? But this is a prophecy that talks about God delivering Israel with le- mountains being leveled and rivers being dried up. Now, God did deliver Israel from the Babylon uh, exile, and none of that happened. And so here's what uh, uh, many uh, commentators will say uh, about the fact that, um, that, that uh, these things didn't happen. Uh, this comes from a guy named Oswald. In fact, none of those things occurred according to Ezra and Nehemiah. So did the prophecy fail? And he says, he concludes, God did act in history as Isaiah and other prophets foretold. And he did something that the prophet's own time, uh, that in the prophet's own time was called impossible. God intervened. But he did not intervene in the precise way described in this poetic passage. Now, I do believe the Bible contains poetry. It contains hyperbole. But I don't think this is hyperbole or poetry. I think this is speaking about an end times judgment. But he goes on to say, he did not intervene in the precise ways described in this poetic passage. I believe it is because he knows he needs to move the emotions and will of a people crushed into apathy. So he's saying God used these words because these people were crushed. They were apathetic. So God just used big language about coming in anger and and reshaping the topography of the world. That there, he uses words like that when people just have an emotional need that there's nothing literal to them. You know, maybe that explains Ezekiel's temple with measurements that have never been seen anywhere on earth. I mean, they had a crummy little temple at the time and God was leaving the temple And God talked about this temple with dimensions and sizes and rooms that we've never seen before. Uh, Maybe that's just what you say to people who have a crummy little temple to encourage them. There are scores, maybe even hundreds of prophecies concerning God judging the enemies of Israel throughout the prophets and the minor prophets. Maybe that's just what you say to people who are oppressed. Where do you draw the line on that kind of Bible interpretation? I don't. I see a near fulfillment where God did something tremendous and I see a far fulfillment that is yet in the future that is literally going to happen in this region and elsewhere. Listen to Revelation 19, verse 13, speaking of our Savior, Jesus Christ. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. The armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I'm expecting that to literally happen on this globe in the end times. 
And Isaiah is showing us events that are happening. There are near-term implications. There are end-time implications. We don't pick and choose what's true in God's Word. And I don't believe God embellishes words just because people are needy. Well, back to our outline. You can come back now if you're not into Bible prophecy. Um, uh, Though spiritually needy, God calls Israel and God will use Israel. Verse number 18. Hear you deaf and look you blind. This is the invitation that you may see. Now, being called deaf and blind is not, you know, flattering (laughs) in the least, is it? But it's true. We are all blind spiritually. When we're first born, we're natural people. We don't have spiritual insight until God moves in our heart causes us to trust Christ, the Spirit indwells our heart, opens up the Word of God. Uh, Hear you deaf, without Jesus Christ, that's me. Hear you blind, without the Holy Spirit, that's me. Okay? That you may see. Who is blind but my servant, or deaf as my messenger whom I send? Now here, I think he's talking about Israel. Even though it's in the singular, I think it's talking about the nation of Israel. That, that they're, he is, and he is sending them. He is going to use them. He uses the blind. That really encourages me. Who is blind is my dedicated one, or blind is the servant of the Lord. He sees many things, but he does not observe them. His ears are open, but he does not hear. The Lord, what I think he's saying is, they're hearing biblical truth, but they don't grasp, they don't understand the significance of it. Verse 21, the Lord was pleased for his righteousness sake to magnify his law and make it glorious. But this is a people plundered and looted. They are all of them trapped in holes and hidden in prisons. This is talking about the servant of God, I understand here. Now, look at that word, plundered and looted. When you give yourself over to sin, have you ever found yourself at the end of the day plundered, looted, trapped in holes? Boy, I I, I tell you what, that just seems like a really, really good description of my sin life. That it has consequences that are greater than I ever wished they would be. And, and, and there you sit at the end of the day, plundered, looted, empty, unfulfilled, trapped in holes, hidden in prisons. They have become plunder with none to rescue, spoil with none to say restore. There's no giving it back. Who among you will give ear to this and will attend at a time to come? Now, here's an interesting question. If you're like Israel, Jacob, and you've been plundered and looted by sin and you, you've been in blindness... Who caused you to be plundered and looted? Look at verse 24. Who gave up Jacob to the looter and Israel to the plunderers? Was it not the Lord against whom we have sinned? In whose ways we would not walk? And though whose law they would not obey? You know, if you feel plundered, looted, and you're living in a hole right now because of your sin and your circumstances, I am sorry for you, and as your brother in Christ, I will pray for you and help you through that. But at the same time, even as you suffer, there has to be a sense that you look to heaven and you say, let God be true and every man a liar. (laughs) I am where I deserve to be. And in fact, where I'm at is instructing me in the ways of sin and righteousness. So God, you are very good to have me in a hole. You are very good to have me looted and plundered and humbled, seeking righteousness. Verse 25, so he poured on him the the heat of his anger and the might of battle. It set him on fire all around, but he did not understand. It burned him up, but he did not take it to heart. But now, 
And I just have to. This is a continuing conversation. Look at chapter 43, verse 1. But now says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you will not be burned, and the flames shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. And we will continue that discussion next week as we see how God takes a broken, plundered people and he calls them by name, he redeems them, he uses them as his servant to reach the world. As we conclude today's text, I don't want you to miss this point. Israel is spiritually lacking. Israel is spiritually lacking, but God still saves Israel and uses Israel to save the world. Christian ministry is not a beauty contest. You do not go out and talk to people about Jesus because you've got it all together. You talk about Jesus because he's your life. He's, 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 he's what defines you. And, and so I would encourage you to talk to people about Jesus Christ. You will be amazed at how many people are eager to hear. And, and you will be amazed at how you will find your voice as you talk about Jesus Christ. That, that as you... See the opening, and, and you'll recognize it. The Spirit will cause you to recognize this is somebody that I could ask, uh, you know, about their, their relationship to God, about their future in eternity and what they believe, and ask if I can share what I believe because it, it, it's so dear to me and it's so important to me, and it's, uh, you know, it, it's, it's why I live my life. And you, if you've if not done a lot of this, just be sensitive. If they even look like they're not interested, just acknowledge them to say, oh, I see you're not interested. I, I, I don't, I don't want to go into a conversation you're not interested in. Uh, you know, you, what you might find is they might say, no, 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 I'm interested because there are a lot of people who don't have answers. And they're really curious about you who do, about you who live your life for Jesus Christ because they've never really had a serious conversation with anyone who's serious about Jesus. And the cultural thing to do Whenever a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon or a Christian knocking on your door, the, 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 the cultural thing to do is to kind of turn up your nose a little bit, right? So they, they might just default go into that. Just acknowledge it and offer it in the conversation, to change the conversation. You might find, no, 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 I do want to hear. Now you've got a student. Practice. Practice sharing the gospel. Share your faith. It's not a beauty contest. You don't have to be perfect to talk about Jesus. The last thing I do want to talk about is just human pride that a lot of times we don't want to stop and recognize that we're sinners and we're needy, that we need a Savior. Uh, you need to repent. You need to trust Jesus Christ. I want to leave you with these, this, the, these few verses. He was the true light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, the Jews, and his own people did not receive him. In fact, they crucified him. But to all who did receive him, there was a subset. Though the world rejected him, though his own people rejected him, there was a subset. To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Now, when you approach Jesus today, you need to approach in humility. You need to confess your sin. I am a sinner. I don't deserve eternity in God's holy presence. I deserve it in that other place, in hell, where sinners go, who've offended a, a beautifully glorious deity. That's where they deserve to go because of the one who they offended. That's me. 
but Jesus died for my sins and I choose to, do you see the verbs here, receive him? What's it mean to receive Jesus? Uh, oh, it clarifies, who believed in his name. That's another way of saying it. To receive Jesus is to believe in his name. And if you will choose to do that, you will be a child of God. Have you chosen for yourself to believe in Jesus Christ? Are you a child of God? Again, it's not a beauty contest coming to Jesus. In fact, it's, it's kind of an ugly contest. <laughs> Confessing your sin. Confessing your need. And trusting the Savior. I'm going to give us just a minute of silence and if you'd like to use that time to pray silently to God and confess, God, I am a sinner and I receive Jesus as my Savior. I'm trusting him to save me. If you've never done that, if you've never prayed that prayer with meaning to God the Father, I would really encourage you to do that now. You do not want to wait. Let's pray. Pray silently. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word today. Thank you for our Savior, who in his first coming was so gentle. He did not break a bruised reed. He did not blow past and snuff out a smoldering wick. Father, we understand his second coming is going to be quite different. And we look forward to his coming, and we would say, even so, come Lord Jesus, rule and reign in righteousness. Set everything right on the planet earth. Set everything right in our hearts and souls. For now, Father, you have been very patient and forbearing with mankind. We continue to live. We continue to sin against your name in many horrendous ways. And yet, Father, you do not destroy us. You do not judge us in finality, not yet. I pray, God, for everyone in this room and everyone who understands this message that they would trust Jesus Christ as their Savior, that they would receive sight, that they would receive your Holy Spirit working in their hearts to open up the Scriptures when they read them. And Father, I pray that you would help us to share our faith in Jesus Christ. Help us, God, to be that voice that people need to hear, someone who is truly serious about their faith, someone who is truly walking in relationship to Jesus Christ and can share that relationship with them. Give us fruitfulness, please, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.